Welcome back to the nationally syndicated Price of Business. I'm your host, Kevin Price, talking to you about you and your business, and always a lot more than that. We like talking about what's happening in, in uh, other areas, particularly the political front, because let's face it, that affects our business, and that includes the courts. And uh, any long-term listener to the show knows I have been doing a, a great series now for a couple of years with Washington Post reporters. And we're doing another one today, and I'm really excited. Robert Barnes is joining uh, joining me. I'm, I've been a fan of his work. I've been uh, keeping track of his articles. Frankly, the stuff that's going on in the in the courts are just as intri- intriguing as what's going on in the executive and legislative branch. And uh, uh, Robert, I think your insights really interesting. I think you bring a lot of nuance and, and really uh, show uh, that that it's hard to paint this court with too broad of a brush. There's a lot of nuance there. It's pretty complicated when you look at it, and you do a great job of cutting through that. Well, thank you. That's nice of you to say. Uh, you know, it's the court is often described as nine uh, individual law firms. You know, they all uh, have life tenure. They all uh, or their own uh, person nominated uh, not by other people on the court, but by a president and confirmed by the Senate. And so while we often sort of think of this as the Roberts Court, as it is, and he does have some, uh, a few more responsibilities because he's chief justice, he really is only one vote among the nine. And it always helps to think about the court uh, as that way. Yes, yeah, and of course, much of the media uh, has painted with a very broad brush that, uh, you know, this is a conservative court, conservative court, conservative court. You know, and I, I, I've been reading your work, and, yeah, there, there's no doubt about it. It leans right, but it seems like it has values that may be even bigger than conservatism. Uh, I, I, I get a sense from the majority. There's a couple um, you know, uh, Thomas and Alito, for example, that are very ideological. I think they really do uh, march to their own drum. They may take turns beating drums, but they're all marching to it. Um, but the rest of the conservative appointees, they have a different agenda, I think, uh, to a certain extent. Um, they're not trying to be a rubber stamp for the right. And I, I, I think a great you know, example uh, is what's going on, and you talked about this uh, recently, uh, about things that have happened in a lower court that is that they thought would be a fast track, they being conservatives, to getting their things rubber-stamped to the Supreme Court. That hasn't been a, the case. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think that there is no doubt that this court has become more conservative with the uh, Trump uh, nominees. I, I think you could uh, say that uh, all three of them uh, are probably more conservative than the people that they replace, certainly in the case of uh, Justice Barrett, certainly in the case of Justice Kavanaugh. So there is no doubt that they have moved the court to the right. Uh, But, you know, when you're in the majority, when you have those six votes, uh, you do see more nuance among those six. And I think that there is a difference uh, in uh, the conservatism of those uh, six people. Uh, You know, I I have a reader who likes to tell me all the time that I never talk about how the liberals 
vote uh, in concert, and uh, that's not true. I do write about that. But, you know, the liberals, uh, it doesn't matter if they're in agreement or not, because there are only three of them. They can't make things happen uh, without two of the conservatives. And so uh, the the differences among the conservatives are really uh, what makes this court uh, different and and what makes it sometimes, not always, uh, but sometimes hard to predict. Yes, and in the article I'm referring to, this conservative appeals court's rulings are testing the Supreme Court. Brilliant, brilliant uh, article. Love the perspective. I love this quote. This is my favorite takeaway. Uh, I love I love reading serious content that makes me laugh, and I, I found some of that in this article. A meth lab of conservative grievance, said New York University law professor Melissa Murray, a liberal who helps anchor a podcast about the Supreme Court called Strict Scrutiny. A recent episode describes, I can't even say it without laughing, describes the Fifth Circuit as an American idol for conservative judges hoping to be noticed for a spot someday on the high court. Yeah, I, I, I think that really epitomizes it. Yeah, that court, uh, the Fifth Circuit, is, uh, I would say, now the most conservative of the regional courts of appeals around the country. Um, and and frankly, you know, uh, is going a little uh, further than the Supreme Court is ready to go. Its record at the Supreme Court last year was not good. I think uh, it was reversed um, more than uh, any other or more times than any other uh, appeals court. Uh, already this year, the court has taken either five or six cases from the Fifth Circuit. Um, you know, it's partly because it is the place that conservative organizations and conservative attorneys general like those in uh, Texas and uh, Louisiana and Mississippi, it's, it's a sort of good launching pad for uh, issues that they want to get to the Supreme Court. Um, but so far, the Supreme Court has not really been ready to go along uh, or to do uh, to be as conservative as that appeals court has. Yeah, I think that uh, that's absolutely right. Um, you know, I think what I hear most often, you know, I I, I look at these things. I I'm a little geeky. I, I should find more healthy hobby, I'm sure. But I look they talk about these things, and one of the things I see most consistently from the dominant uh, conservatives uh, that really are kind of kind of moving things along not the uh, you know not the Thomas or uh, Alito ones per se but they're very concerned about what the government is doing what it's like I don't see where this branch had the right to do that activity so let's send it back and have now that's a conservative idea I get that but sometimes that means larger conservative ideological objectives. A good example was the morning after pill, right? Everyone thought, oh, yeah, they'll be completely supportive of, uh, you know, enforcing the bans in other states. Not so much. I I thought it was a very, uh, it's a good example. Uh, They're really concerned about each, each department doing their job. Well, I think that uh, one thing that comes into play here, and this is where the chief justice's leadership does mean something. He very much um, he has two things in mind. One, he likes to move the law in an incremental uh, fashion rather than a sudden fashion. There are 
you know, maybe a couple of exceptions to that, but he um, would uh, would rather do things uh, step by step and gradually um, and feels like he's got uh, a lot of time to do that. And I think the other thing is he um, feels very strongly about the independence of the judiciary branch. He um, wants uh, to protect that. He wants, uh, you know, the court doesn't have any way to enforce its decisions except by uh, agreement from the other branches of the government and by the public. And so I think the Chief Justice worries about the court getting, uh, you know, moving too quickly in a way that would uh, undermine that trust or uh, make uh, the public. Um, not as inclined to follow what the Supreme Court says. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, he's complicated. He shocked <laughs> millions of people uh, when uh, Obamacare came in front of the court. Uh, he, he's surprisingly independent, and uh, but he seems to have certain bearings. I, I, you know, I generally uh, have become kind of fond of this decision making uh, over time. I think there's a deliberation and a soberness about it that uh, that's important. Running out of time, I did want to mention about the court reluctantly uh, regulating itself. Yes, <laughs> I don't know how else to describe it. Why don't you talk a, a little bit about that and and whether their actions are really going to have any teeth? Well, it's a, you know, it was a kind of grudging agreement, I'd have to say, to come up with a, a code of ethics, code of conduct, they call it, specific to the Supreme Court. Uh, it took years um, to do this, literally. And, um, you know, it its big glaring hole is that there is no enforcement mechanism for it. So there's an awful lot of shoulds in that code, what justices should, uh, but there is no place for a member of the public or anyone else to uh, file a complaint if they don't think that the justices lived up to that or fell short of of those goals. Um, I don't think that's surprising. The Chief Justice has said in the past that uh, you know, it's part of this independence of the judiciary that he thinks, and he thinks that, you know, the Supreme Court is different from every other court. It's the only court that is mentioned in the Constitution. The Constitution basically says that Congress can set up lower courts, but this is there is one Supreme Court. And so um, they are reluctant to have someone else grading their work. Um, I, I don't think uh, that this is going to be the end of it. I think that the um, public isn't going to think that this is enough. Um, but, you know, as I say, it took years for them to get to this point. So uh, I don't know exactly what the next step will be. Yeah, it, it reminded me, and I'm not making an, uh, a moral equivalency here on this, this to be clear, uh, Robert. Reminds me like what uh, dicta- you know dictatorships say in lofty terms about the values of their country, and then on a daily basis they violate uh, them and uh, wage war on their citizenry. Now I know that's an exaggeration, but words don't really add up. Um, the, the, these are relatively empty without enforcement. And uh, but you're right. I mean, you know, we can want it all, but it's only going to begin in all things governing. 
only begins with something. You, you rarely have ever get it all. So even in a small way, it's progress. Final thought from you, I would love to get just some of your thoughts about the court in general. And, uh, what, you know, I know we got a ways away in the middle of uh, all of these cases uh, being heard, but what's your sense by the kind of answers and questions that are being asked, uh, you know, on, on some of these uh, cases that are before the court right now? Well, you know, as as you say, the court is um, is always in a state of sort of unfinished business, which is that they will decide one thing, but it doesn't decide the issue forever. Uh, and in fact, you know, uh, new issues come up from the decision the court makes. And so this year, we're going to see um, more decisions about social media companies and the responsibilities of those kind of companies and the First Amendment. We're going to see uh, more abortion. Uh, there is going to be uh, – the court will have to take this case, I think, about the uh, – uh, regulation of the drug that is most commonly used for medication abortions. Uh, the court has another gun case that they've they've had one case they've already heard. I think there will be others on their agenda this term as a result of the gun decision they made a few years ago, which uh, loosened restrictions and made it more difficult for governments to impose. Uh, gun control measures. And so in, in some ways, the court is sort of in a constant um, state of trying to identify what the law is on some of the most controversial issues that are out there. Absolutely. It'll be interesting to watch. I'm going to ask for you by name to give us a summary uh, in, uh, next summer. Okay. <laughs> Robert Bond, he's with the uh, Washington Post. Uh, Robert, thanks a lot for being with us. Really interesting conversation. I'm Kevin Price. This is the nationally syndicated Price of Business.